Okay, so we're going to do a short little study uh, over the next few weeks, uh, looking at some different things out of the book of Esther. Um, there's some fascinating dynamics in the book of Esther that I have not had time to really develop on uh, Sunday morning. So I'm calling this uh, little uh, ex exercise that we're going to go through, Extra Esther. Uh, we're going to take an additional look at a few things in the book of Esther for a few weeks. And um, I, I think the one that we're going to talk about tonight will probably be the most difficult one of the bunch uh, because uh, it is dealing with an additional set of uh, chapters that were added later to the book of Esther, and it's found in the Apocrypha. So if you have a Bible that has some of the uh, apocryphal books in it, you'll find a book uh, between the Old and the New Testament uh, called Additions to Esther. So that's what I want to talk a little bit about tonight. I want to talk a little bit about why that was necessary that these additional chapters were added uh, to the book. So what we're going to do is we're uh, going to ask the question, why extra Esther? And um, we're going to find that at first reading uh, within Christian circles, it appears that Esther is the hero of the story. And that's the way we kind of interpret the book of Esther. Uh, she is the hero because she intervenes on behalf of the Jewish people. It's interesting that our Jewish uh, friends uh, look at the book of Esther uh, as part of their religious tradition, and the book actually gives a justification for a holiday Purim. And so um, in the book of Esther, and you can see up here or on your notes, that it is called the Megillot, and that is a Hebrew word for uh, scroll. And so uh, Jewish people call it the scroll of Esther uh, rather than the book of Esther. And the whole purpose of it is to kind of reinforce uh, this ongoing observance of this religious holiday called Purim. And um, the book will give some rationale uh, with the additional chapters as to why this festival is important to the Jewish people. Um, what's interesting is that the festival of Purim is not found in the Old Testament in terms of the Torah. Uh, so all of the other uh, festivals that are kept, uh, whether it's the uh, Passover or the Feast of Tabernacles, those type of things can be found in the Old Testament Torah. But there is no Feast of Purim. It is developed later and it is uh, by yeah. these additional chapters that we see uh, why this is important to the Jewish people. So if you look about uh, halfway down on the slide, um, since I didn't print out additional copies of the handout, you're just going to have to find it on your handout because I don't know where it's at. Um, but uh, the book of Esther is the centerpiece of the observance of Purim. Uh, it is traditionally read publicly in the synagogue on Purim Eve. And so actually we're doing this a week late. Purim was last week in the Jewish calendar, Thursday night to Friday night. Uh, and um, it is followed by uh, a number of theatrics um, that go along with the retelling of the story. So uh, there's uh, different things. There's kind of noise makers that children have. 
that when they hear the name Haman, they make uh, all kinds of noise and shout and that type of thing. But what's interesting as well is that the adults get involved in this as well uh, by dressing up in costumes and so forth. So um, uh, on the last point here, Purim is sort of like a, um, a Mardi Gras of the Jewish faith type of thing. It's a carnival, carnival type of holiday that's replete with reenactments of the story, excessive drinking and general frivolity that is not found in the other Jewish festivals. So I found a couple of uh, videos. I'm gonna show you one. This is uh, done kind of comically uh, by uh, Mayim uh, Bialik. Uh, she is Amy on the Big Bang Theory, if you uh, watch my show. So I'm gonna show you this video on uh, YouTube, which is only a few minutes long, uh, as she talks about, as a Jewish woman, the festival of Purim. And what I'm going to do is turn you around, Helen, so you can kind of see. Mm -hmm. Hey, guys. Today we're going to rock. If I told you that Jews had their own Halloween of sorts, would you believe me? If I told you that on this day, we are actually commanded to get drunk. Would you believe me if I told you that men are encouraged to drink holiday? But the book that we read on this holiday doesn't even mention God's name once. Which that we can holiday rest on the periphery of a Persian queen who is Jewish, but she's not pregnant because nobody likes the Jews, they hate the Jews, and then she has to reveal it, and OMG, she ends up saving the Jews. Because that is true. So, what do Jews actually commemorate on Purim? Well, the story goes a little bit like It all began when the Queen of Iran, Queen Vashti, refused to dance naked for her husband when he summoned her. So, the king, whose name is impossibly Akashi Roche, picks Vashti out and does a nationwide America's Got Talent esque search for a new queen. When all is said and done, a new queen is chosen, and her name is Esther. But her name in Hebrew is actually Hadassah, like the willow tree. See, she's Jewish. You can't tell anyone. Esther is totally slaying it with a ring. The king has this creepy evil advisor, and his name is Haman. He's plotting to kill the Jews. Like he actually says, I'm going to kill the Jews. Uncle's name is Mordecai, and he's a really stand-up guy. But he overhears Haman's plot, and he tells his niece, Esther. Together, they realize they have to take action. Because, you know, maybe she was placed in this power position to save all of the Jews. That's totally a thing, right? Right. So Esther comes up with a brilliant and brave plan. She invites her husband and Haman to a set of banquets. Haman thinks he's just there for a lit party. But at the second of these banquets, in a moment of supreme total awesomeness, it's just that he even wants to kill all the Jews. And he's like, he's like, the Jew. And then he's like, anyway, we can talk about that later. Right now, please hang Haman all the time. 
concept just when all seemed lost, the entire Jewish people was saved. So that's Torah. So to commemorate this miraculous story and to honor Esther's awesomeness, we celebrate every year. We donate money to charity and we give little food gifts to our friends in order to spread the love. And yes, we are supposed to get intoxicated if you are of legal drinking age, of course. Why do we get drunk? It's so that we can't tell the difference between heroes and villains. It's to emphasize the topsy-turvy nature of this holiday and a life. In a second, life can change. Esther was not queen, then she was. The Jews were safe, and then they weren't. The Jews were threatened, and then they were redeemed. Purim is super fun, super meaningful, and super empowering. It celebrates the power we all have inside of us to be courageous, to be heroic, and to be the deliverers of, of truth and salvation. Oh, also, it wouldn't be a Jewish holiday without a ritual food. The ritual food of Purim are these tasty triangle-shaped cookies called Purimintashit, which means Haman's pockets. No one really knows why. And in Israel, they're called Haman's ears, which is super weird, but it doesn't really matter. Being Jewish is so much fun, but it is especially fun at Purim time. <laughs> So, guess what I'm doing right now? I'm looking up my favorite humantashi recipe. As I mentioned, that's the cookie we eat on Purim. To get my recipe, go to frackation.com and you can make your very own humantashi. Yay! Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like. So yeah, it's uh, just like any other thing in the Jewish holiday where it, it's um, at a particular time of the year. So it's one of those spring, uh, you know, or approaching spring type of holidays. So it was last week. Now, whether it falls on exactly the same date or not, I don't think so. But it's in that sort of like uh, Passover and Yom Kippur. It's within a certain... Um, segment yeah i think so right yeah right it was the end of february yeah so i don't know if you heard that okay or not helen but uh that uh youtube link if that didn't come out very well over zoom uh you can look at the, uh look that up on your own but i thought that was just kind of a fun way of looking at uh, the festival of Purim. And you, you could tell from her presentation that it has kind of a completely different outlook than the way we as Protestant Christians tend to look at the book of Esther. Uh, to them, it is all bound up in tradition, bound up in uh, religious festival, that type of thing, rather than the focus being solely on Esther. So one of the things that we're going to find in this additional look at the book of Esther is that Mordecai, in the uh, additional uh, chapters that are added, plays a much bigger role than Esther does in the Protestant book of Esther. So, you know, we often use the phrase, a search for answers. Well, in the book of Esther, when you read it, you, you have really more a search for questions because all kinds of different questions and um, uh, 
questions like this. I'm getting a little bit of echo, Helen, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna mute you, okay? Just so that I don't get any. Okay, that should be better. Sorry about that. <clears throat> okay, so some of the uh, search for questions includes things like, why is there no mention of God in the text? I mean, you would think as being part of the Old Testament that that would be a primary focus. So we as Protestants tend to say that the book of Esther um, reveals God's providential um, work. And so he kind of stays hidden behind the text. Um, and then when we find that there are certain coincidences that take place, uh, such as the king not being able to sleep and then reading the chronicles of his rule that reveals that his life was saved by Mordecai, we say all, all of that is God's providential work. He's working behind the scenes to arrange these circumstances so that um, he can save the Jewish people from this uh, genocidal edict. Um, the second question is, well, why are three more chapters added that are found in the book uh, uh, called Additions to Esther in the Apocrypha. Um, when you read the book of Esther, one of the things that you'll notice, and we just did that this past Sunday morning, is by the time you see that there is this reversal of fortunes, so Haman is going to hang Mordecai, but he ends up getting hung on the gallows that he has built for Mordecai, you might say, well, okay, the book should be done then, but it doesn't. It goes on for three more chapters, and we're going to see this week that the uh, problem that the Jewish people are facing is not done yet. Even though Haman is out of the way, doesn't mean their troubles are out of the way because of this irrevocable decree that King Ahasuerus or King Xerxes um, uh, wrote into law that Haman put him up to doing. So um, why does it take three more chapters? Uh, because we got to see where this story is going to go. We would think Haman the enemy is out of the way, but there's other problems or hurdles that they need to overcome. Another question, why name the day or the festival Purim after an instrument of choice that is used by the enemy? So the Hebrew word uh, per is, means lot. It means to roll the dice and determine a, a date upon which this genocidal decree uh, would be enacted. So why does Haman leave the date of the Jews up to chance? In other words, why wouldn't he just set a date? Why roll the dice? Why determine the day that he's going to exterminate the Jews left up to chance. Another question, is this, since it will go on for months, in other words, the lot or the per that is cast decides a date that is months away. And could it be that Haman is trying to taunt the Jewish people? They know this day is approaching. They know this day is approaching. It's getting closer. It's getting closer. And as it's getting closer, what are they going to do about it? How are they going to save, be saved from this um, genocidal maniac? Um, so an that's another question. Another one is, why is there a preoccupation with Mordecai's actions toward Haman? So 
this all is started by Mordecai not bowing down to Haman. So King Ahasuerus um, uh, basically elevates Haman to uh, second in command. And he says, you know, everybody should pay homage to Haman. Well, Mordecai refuses to do that. So why is the focus solely on this one man? Is he representative of other Jewish people who were doing the same thing? Or is he acting as a singular entity? And if he is doing that, well, then why the focus only on him? Is he the real hero of the story uh, before even Esther needs to be pushed a little bit to step in to intervene? Another question. Yeah, well, that's another way of looking at it. Yeah. So uh, in case you didn't hear, Helen, Esty said, or could Mordecai, in a sense, be the the cause or the villain or the bad person because he brings all this upon the entirety of the Jewish race uh, by his actions. So you see, this is a book of a lot of questions. It's There's all kinds of things that are going on here. Why is there a preoccupation with the different banquets? I mean, you have uh, about five of them that are mentioned in the book. And why is the book kind of built upon um, Vashti refusing to, to go to a banquet. Haman is invited to a banquet. Uh, then obviously Purim itself, which is a holiday, is a banquet or a feast of sorts. So you have banquets <laughs> through the whole book. Yeah, they're party animals. That's exactly right. Yeah, Esther does two banquets. And why didn't she speak up at the first one? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, why didn't she? Yeah, why didn't she reveal her identity? Why didn't she be, reveal her ethnicity? So there's all kinds of questions. Um, why did Esther need to be pushed by Mordecai uh, to intervene on behalf of the Jews? Wouldn't she want to do that naturally, anyways? Um, uh, why didn't she reveal it initially? Why the second banquet before she unveils the plan? So the more questions or the more reading that you do in the book, the more questions surface, really. And you can kind of keep asking these questions. And perhaps the additions to the book of Esther realizes that there's all kinds of unanswered questions. And maybe these extra chapters are added to help clarify some of these things. So uh, with that in mind, Let's take a look at the next slide. So the questions might give reason for the additions. So as I mentioned earlier, um, the Apocrypha books, which are in between the Old and New Testament, include the additions to the book of Esther. However, they are not in Hebrew. They are in Greek. So a little bit of back uh, information here. So when the Jewish people went into exile, they began to lose their roots and they began to lose their language. So kids that are born in exile begin to adapt and speak the language of the, the empire that they are in. So with that as a uh, ongoing problem, uh, what we find is that there is a group of scholars. Um, and if you ever see 
the abbreviation LXX. It stands for the Greek, Greek Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the LXX, which in Roman numerals means what? 70. Why that? Because the uh, translation from Hebrew into Greek was done by 70 scholars, okay? So um, the LXX is this Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the additions to the book of Esther um, were never in Hebrew. They were added later on um, chronologically, and they are added in Greek. So um, these additions never find its way back into the body of the text of Esther, but are placed afterwards. So if you are a Jewish person late uh, in the Old Testament history, you would understand that the book of uh, Esther is written in Hebrew, but there's some additional information that's kind of attached to the back end of it in Greek. That makes sense to everybody, okay? Any questions? So now here's where it gets a little bit tricky. And this is why I said tonight is gonna be the hardest of what we're gonna talk about for the next few weeks. So there's six blocks of text uh, and they are conventionally labeled A through F, A, B, C, D, E, F. And what's interesting is they are bookends. So edition A uh, is one part of additional information and edition F kind of finishes it up. Edition B and E go together and edition C and D go together. So additions A and F is the dream that Mordecai had. And then addition F is the interpretation of that dream. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll show you in a minute, okay? Addition B is the letter that Haman sent out uh, that gave the decree to kill the Jews, while addition E is the letter that Mordecai sends out after he has been elevated to second in command, that the Jews will be allowed to defend themselves on this day of destiny um, that was set by irrevocable law. Then addition C and D contain the prayers of Esther and Mordecai when they find that they are under this genocidal edict. And uh, it gives to us uh, some of their thoughts and some of their feelings and some of their grief. So the main reason for these additions might be to give the story of Esther the religious atmosphere that is lacking in the Old Testament book of Esther. So uh, I know you're probably confused, but if you can look at um, A through F, a and F go together, B and E go together, and C and D go together. Now, those of you who have been in Bible study with me for any length of time, you have remembered that in the Old Testament, they use a lot of things called chiasm. And chiasm is where a first point is compared to the last point, and it keeps going down until you get to the center, and the center is usually the most important point, where in this case, um, the center of that chiasm 
is the prayers of Esther and Mordecai that intervene on behalf of the Jewish people before the king. Okay, go ahead. No, it's just added on to the back. So there's an early church father by the name of Jerome, who instead of taking these additions and inserting them where they belong in the book of Esther, he just clumped them together and he added it to the back of the book. That makes sense? So on your notes, I, I'm showing you, and I'll get to that on, on the screen here in a moment. It shows you where these additions, if you were to insert them in the book of Esther, where they would be placed, okay? So you'll see that in a moment. Okay, so there's a religious angle to all these additions. So the first part, A and F, Mordecai is seen as a dreamer, and I'm going to read part of it in a minute. And he, he kind of carries on the long tradition of other dreamers in the Old Testament. Remember, Joseph had a dream, and it set a destiny for his entire family when he was sold into slavery in Egypt. Daniel is a dream uh, book, and he also interprets the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar. So in many ways, Mordecai is kind of elevated in this first uh, edition to the level of Joseph and Daniel. You see what I'm saying? This addition is almost making Mordecai more important than even Esther, okay? Um, so some of the dreams uh, I'll read in a moment here, but let's jump down to C and D. So C and D go together. And I mentioned before, uh, one is uh, the prayer of Esther. And what's interesting about her prayer is that now in Esther's prayer, it's tied back to the Torah in the sense that in the Torah, Moses said, if you obey God, he'll bless you. But if you disobey, you will go into exile. That's found in the book of Deuteronomy. And what we find is that the queen is lamenting that they are in exile in Persia, and they she blames the Jews for their sins that placed them there. Okay, so that begins to tie back in to the Torah. Also in her prayer, she bemoans the fact that she's married to a pagan king. So she's not really a Hebrew in the eyes of uh, the Jewish people in the biblical text of Esther, because she's a replacement for Vashti. She is an individual that's part of a harem. She's an individual that seems to have been enjoying palace life up until Mordecai pushes her a little bit to intervene on behalf. So she's not really seen as much of a hero, but this prayer of Esther says, oh, she regretted it. She hated every day that she was married to King Ahasuerus. So this additional information kind of justifies her a little bit as a righteous person. And one of the questions that comes up in the book of Esther is the question, was Esther a moral individual or not? Um, and then what we find is that the additions 
elevate her to be a righteous woman. Then addition D talks about her going in. Now, there's also Mordecai's prayer in this uh, addition C as well. But uh, the next section in section D, it describes her going into the throne room. So remember a few weeks back on Sunday, we talked about how um, she was afraid to go into the throne room because she hadn't been invited by the king and she hadn't even seen him for 30 days. You remember that? So um, this section says that uh, when she approaches the throne room of Ahasuerus, um, she faints. She is so wracked with nerves that she faints. And um, then the king comes and assures her that this prohibition that uh, she is violating by approaching the king uh, is doesn't apply to her. She's the queen. She can come anytime that she wants. But the book of Esther seems to, in the, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, seems to portray the fact that if the king was in a bad mood, he would replace Esther with a new queen as well. But this section um, tends to uh, say, no, uh, the king came and said, no, this, this edict that no one's allowed into my presence without an invitation doesn't apply to you, which kind of undermines Esther's heroism because one of the things that we elevate out of the Old Testament book of Esther is, hey, even though she didn't want to go in, she was brave and she marched right in there and she she uh, gains an audience with the king and says, I want to have a banquet with you uh, tomorrow. Okay, finally, section E uh, talks about how the king himself will rescind this decree for the Jews to be killed. And uh, in a way, it's a way that Haman is censured and uh, presents uh, him as the one that is treacherously plotting a coup against the king. So you remember um, that there were two individuals that were found out by Mordecai outside in the court that were trying to plot the, the murder of the king. He intervenes and saves the king's life. This addition says Haman is a part of that group too. By looking back on the fact he is an individual that was plotting against the king because he wanted to take over the king's position. So what we find then is in this addition, the king exonerates the Jews of all charges that are made by Haman. Well, what are the charges made by Haman? The additions say that Mordecai is going to not only lead a rebellion, but people will follow him and not honor the king as well. So that is kind of a kind of a quick summary of these additions. It adds a religious angle, as I mentioned before. And in adding this um, additional angle, what it does is it gives to us a religious perspective on the book of Esther, because um, like I mentioned before, Esther does not have any mention of God, doesn't have a mention of the Torah, doesn't mention any of those things in it. So in a sense, the, the Bible uh, version of Esther is a real secular book. 
but we as Protestants say, no, we see the providential hand of God behind the chapters. What the additions to the book of Esther does is give us this religious angle that allows us to see, hey, uh, there's more going on here than meets the eye. So, um, so does, that's kind of what's going on in these additions to Esther. Um, and I'll explain kind of, kind of the structure of it here in a moment, okay? So any questions so far that you have? I might've lost you along the way. As I mentioned, I repeat this the third time. This will be the hardest of this set of studies. We're dealing with additional information that uh, is not found in the Bible, but it is also hard to determine. Uh, hi, Shelly. Nice to have you on. Hi. Hi. So, uh, we're down on your handout to uh, the point about adding piety to the book of Esther. So without these additions, okay. one could question whether Mordecai's religion, uh, uh, could question Mordecai's religious stature, or was he just a politician, basically, uh, that he, he was angling uh, on behalf of his people. Now, the most notable comparison that you can make between the additions of the book of Esther found in the Apocrypha and the Old Testament book is found in chapter six of, um, of these additions uh, or chapter six in the book of Esther. So if you have the book of Esther and since you don't have the Apocrypha in front of you, go over to the book of Esther and go to chapter six. And we're gonna just, you can read just the first few verses here. And then I'm going to show you, actually, you don't really need to turn there because I put it onto the next screen. Um, what you'll find is that um, it, it becomes much more, um, there's much more piety that is added to the text. So let me go over there and then I'll come back to this slide. So, and I, I don't know if you, you ladies can see this. Yeah. In the addition, the fact that he just talked to Uh, since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, so now after the fact that uh, Mordecai has been elevated because he revealed uh, the murder of and um, Haman received the elevation of Mordecai as the beginning of the downfall of and 
Your downfall is But in the brief addition of the book of Esther, it says, if Mordecai is of the race of the Judeans or the Jews, you will never be able to warn him because the written bond is when you look at the text of that we have in um, the book of Esther, there's no mention of God um, at all. But what we find is that there is now this addition in the book of Esther. And I see there was a question from Shelley. Did anyone else online lose sound? Um, so there's only Helen um, that's online tonight with you, Shelly, and she's shaking her head. Yeah, she lost lost sound. So there must have been. Yeah, when you moved away, when you moved away from your computer, we lost you. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, that's because the speaker is right in front. So yeah, I apologize. So okay, let's go back uh, to adding piety. So the cumulative effect of this of all these sections that have been added to the book of Esther is to make Esther a more overtly religious tale than a secular story. Does that make sense to everybody? So um, you can see why the Jews later did this because there was a strong resistance um, to add Esther to the Hebrew scriptures because it's just simply kind of a secular um, uh, account. Whereas when they add this, there's, uh, there's a push now uh, to add it to the Old Testament canon because you now finally have prayer, fasting, and different things like that that are tied to the Torah. So another effect of the additions is to heighten the reader's awareness of the tension and animosity between Jews and Gentiles in general. So one of the things that the additions um, accomplish is that the Jews and the Gentiles, um, there is this ongoing animosity, not just between the Persians and the Jews, but all Gentiles. And so um, I guess it sets up this anti-Semitism that is directed toward the Jewish people uh, a lot more powerfully. Uh, by these additions, uh, rather than thinking, oh, those Persians hated the Jews. It's a wider subject than that. The Babylonians hated the Jews, the Persians hated the Jews, the Canaanites hated the Jews. And one of the things that we'll look at in the coming studies is there's an emphasis uh, that is made about Haman being from the uh, lineage of Agag, now that's a story in 1 Samuel. And Agag is a, an enemy of King Saul. So there's kind of a interesting dynamic that's going on here that Haman naturally would hate the Jews because he's a descendant of Agag, whereas Esther is a descendant of, of the Jewish royalty, Saul, David, Solomon, that type of thing. Comments, questions on that at all? Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. You know, they get a mention in the book. Mm-hmm. It's important to see that. Right. Mm-hmm. So right. The official violation appears. God is behind it. Yeah. Right. You should be able to talk about it. Yeah, you should. But, but they really make it. Spells it out. They really spell it out. That's right. Yeah, go ahead. Right. In- some of some of them, yes. Mm-hmm. They're part of that group that stay back. Yeah. Um, that, that's a great question. So the question for those of you online is. Um, uh, Mordecai and Esther are part of the group uh, of Jews that are left behind and stay behind mm-hmm. in Persia. Remember, in the biblical narrative, Cyrus um, uh, comes to the throne after Babylon is defeated, and Cyrus is the king of the Persian Empire. Well, that's the predecessor of Ahasuerus, okay? So, um, um what you find is that the, um, let me get my train of thought here again. So S, uh, Cyrus allows the Jews to return home. Now that's a whole different storyline. The Jews that get home, they have to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, the story that's found in the book of Nehemiah and so forth. This is a group that stays back in Persia. And so um, we might say that this is a group, why didn't they go back home? You see, there's, they could have had the opportunity to go back home too, but they didn't. They stayed back. They had already assimilated into Persian life. So you see the tension that's kind of going on there as well. So, right. Why would I do that? Did you guys hear that at all, what Esty was saying? Um, she was saying that uh, it would be similar to our boys um, being required to go back to Croatia, where she's from. Uh, and uh, that why would they want to do that? There's nothing there that they're familiar with. They don't know the language, so on and so forth. So, yeah, it's understandable that a lot of Jews decided to to stay in Persia, they kind of, during that time of exile, they kind of rebuilt their life. They got jobs. Maybe they farmed the land. I mean, all kinds of things like that. So own property, own property businesses, that type of thing. Okay, look at your, um, look, <clears throat> there's a graphic on your handout. Okay, uh, that graphic uh, shows you the additions in one column and the traditional text of Esther in the second column. So you're going to notice that if if Jerome, that uh, uh, early church father, would have 
uh, taken the Greek editions and inserted them where they belonged in the book of Esther. This is what the combined book of Esther would look like. It would not begin with chapter one, verse one through 313. It would actually begin with edition one, uh, which is called edition A. That's where the book of Esther would begin. And so it's edition A, but, but in terms of chapters, that's added on to the end of the book of Esther. It's chapter 11, verse two through chapter 12, verse six. That makes sense to everybody? Okay. But if you were to insert it, chronologically, it would come ahead of the beginning of the book of Esther. Uh, um, then addition B, which is chapter 13, verses one through seven, uh, in the additions, um, what you would find is it would come uh, between chapter uh, three, verse 13, and chapter three, verse 14. That's where that would fit. And then addition C and D would come before chapter five, verses one through eight, 12, and addition E would come before chapter eight, verses 13 through 10, three. Now, you don't know what's in chapter eight yet, because that's what we're going to cover this Sunday on in our Sunday sermon. So um, in chapter eight, you're going to find that the threat against the Jews is not resolved by Haman's death. There's still an, uh, another threat that they have to face. And then finally, the book would be concluded with addition F. So again, two things are going on here. And this is why if you're looking at it in color, I've matched them up. A and F go together as far as completing the thought. B and E go together, completing the thought. And C and D go together. But they are all interspersed at different places in the book of Esther. Now, if you don't get that, that's fine. But um, that's the way it works, okay? That's just the way it works. And um, But St. Jerome added the additions at the very end, and that's why it continues the numerical pattern after chapter 10 is done, then you have chapters 11 uh, through 16. Does that make sense? Okay. So, now, I'm just going to run through this real quick. Uh, and then I want to read a couple of things just so you get a feel for it. Hopefully it'll whet your appetite a little bit that if you have a Bible that has the Apocrypha in it, you don't, that you're not afraid of the Apocrypha. I think a lot of times Protestant Christians tend to say, that's anathema, don't go there. The Catholics were wrong by adding it into their Bible. It just gives you additional information. Uh, some of it uh, is a little wild-eyed at points, but uh, what you're going to find is it really does enhance the book of Esther, okay? So edition A reports that Mordecai, said to be one of the captives that went into exile under Nebuchadnezzar, so we're talking about the book of Daniel there, um, which is 112 years earlier than the uh, than um, when this addition is added to the book of Esther. Uh, and he has a dream that foreshadows this drama in the book of Esther, and Mordecai uh, foils this assassination plot against King uh, Xerxes, uh, whose favor of Mordecai embitters uh, Haman, who is an antagonist in the story. So let me read this. This is interesting. So just listen to the 
uh, dream that Mordecai had. Okay, so in the addition to Esther, which would be chapter 11, it says, in the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes the Great, on the first day of Nisan, Mordecai, the son of Jar, son of Shammai, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, had a dream. He was a Jew living in the city of Susa, a great man serving in the court of the king. He was one of the captains whom King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had brought from Jerusalem with King Jehoiah, uh, Jeconiah of Judea. And this was his dream. So now we're given his dream. So listen to this. Noises and confusion, thunders and earthquake, tumult on the earth. Then two great dragons came forward, both ready to fight, and they roared terribly. At their roaring, every nation prepared for war to fight against the righteous nation. It was a dark day of darkness and gloom, of tribulation and distress, affliction and great tumult on the earth, and the whole righteous nation was troubled. They feared the evils that threatened them and were ready to perish. And then they cried out to God, and at their outcry, as though from a tiny spring, there came a great river. With abundant water, light came, and the sun rose, and the lowly were exalted and devoured those held in honor. Mordecai saw in this dream what God had determined to do, and after he awoke, he had it on his mind, seeking all day to understand it in every detail. Pretty wild dream. You got two dragons that are fighting, and what's that? The noise, yeah, exactly, the noise the and so forth. But the symbolism of it is uh, now with this addition to the book of Esther, no longer is the book of Esther kind of a novella. No longer is it a short story. It's apocalyptic in nature, okay? So now he has this vision of all these people coming against the Jewish people, fighting against the Jewish people, and God is going to deliver them. And most people think that the tiny spring that became a great river here is this idea that uh, God would intervene on behalf of the people through Esther. <laughs> and the light that comes, um, light came, the sun rose, is sort of the symbol of salvation. That in the midst of darkness, uh, God would allow the light to rise and would bring them great deliverance. And of course, the dragon is a symbol of evil, uh, of the evil nations, and so on and so forth. So you can see how this little, this, okay, this is Mordecai who uh, has this vision, like Daniel, like Joseph, uh, like others in the Old Testament, that gave to them, uh, gave to him the ability to see what was on the horizon, that there was going to be this great persecution against the Jewish people. So now I'm going to turn over to um, uh, in chapter 11, verse 1, gives to you uh, a postscript. It says, this is when this occurs, in the second year of the reign of Artaxerxes the Great on the first day of Nisan. So it gives to you uh, the time period uh, of when all of this occurs. So um, now that then becomes kind of um, the prelude, if you will, to the beginning of the book of Esther, where um, 
Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. Why? He had this dream. Okay? He had this dream about this great persecution coming against the Jewish people. So it gives kind of the reason why he did what he did. It wasn't, it wasn't so much personal against Haman, although Haman took it that way. It's symbolic of the fact that the Jews are going to fight against this great persecution that is coming their way. Does that make sense to everybody? So you see how that adds some info to understanding what's going through uh, Mordecai's thinking. So um, I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to jump over, just so you kind of hear this. In addition, B, here's the edict uh, of Haman. It, it gives us some rationale as to why, um, why Haman wants to destroy the Jews. So this is addition B. And uh, so in the, in the chapter, it would be chapter 13, one through seven, it was if it was at the end of the book of Esther. But here's what it says. This is the copy of the letter. The great king Artaxerxes writes the following to the governors of the 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia and to the officials under them. Having become ruler of many nations and master of the whole world, not elated with presumption of authority, but always acting reasonably and with kindness. So that... <laughs> So the reason they're conquering the whole world is because they're kind and they're they're going to take care of everybody. So you, you hear that? You hear that political uh, uh, reasoning? So then it goes on. I have determined, this is Haman speaking, I have determined to settle the lives of my subjects in lasting tranquility and in order to make my kingdom peaceable and open to travel throughout all its, uh, its extent to restore the peace desired by all people. When I asked my counselors how this might be accomplished, Haman, who excels among us in sound judgment and is distinguished for his unchanging goodwill and steadfast fidelity, has attended to, has attained the second place in the kingdom pointed out to us that among the nations in the world, there is scattered a certain hostile people who have laws contrary to those of every nation and continuing disregard the ordinances of kings so that the unifying of the kingdom that we honorably intend cannot be brought about. Those Jews just keep getting in the way and saying no to what we want to accomplish. Therefore, therefore, what we want to do is get rid of them because it's for the betterment of the world is to get them out of the way because they follow other laws that are not like our laws. But if they followed our laws, they would realize that everybody would have peace and tranquility and freedom and travel. And, you know, it's, it's a world of roses that is painted in this edict that's saying the only thing that's standing in the way of our empire being better for all the people is if we get rid of the Jews. That has not gone away. That's still what's happening today. If we get rid of, you name it, this group of people, the world will be better and we'll live in peace and harmony. Okay. It's still, uh, if we can get rid of the Muslims, 
if we can prevent them from coming into our country, if we can prevent Mexicans from coming into our country and immigrants, we can live in great harmony and prosperity. It's all those immigrants' fault. It's all the, the Muslims' fault. In some parts of the country, it's all the Blacks' fault. You, you see what I'm saying? You take a scapegoat and you place a group of people, it's all the gays' fault, okay? Uh, it, you know, you pick out a group of people, you place all the blame of all the troubles of the empire upon them, and if we can get rid of that, we can live in peace and harmony. So that's Haman's reasoning, all right? So that is, we don't have time to go through all the additions of Esther, and uh, but I want to conclude tonight with a couple of observations. So the additions to the book of Esther make a theological contribution because it speaks about God directly. And God is the creator of all, that's in chapter 13, verse 10 in the additions. Furthermore, God is close to and holds Israel to be special. No one can oppose God's will. Uh, God controls the nations and reveals himself to people. And finally, God makes the lots fall in the Jews' favor uh, when they are able to defend themselves. We'll get to that this week in, on our, in our Sunday service. And on the other hand, Israel has failed primarily. Why are they in exile in the first place? Because of her idolatry and their refusal to obey the Torah. So, um, if that's a simplification, isn't it? Uh, in the sense that there's a whole lot of reasons why Nebuchadnezzar invaded um, and uh, three times and destroyed Jerusalem. There's political reasons. There's financial reasons. There's, you know, there's certain racial reasons as well. But anyways, um, but this is what the additions to Esther do. They add a theological contribution to the book that's not found there. And so the additions then become a window. And the window is this, that um, there is constant hostility between Jews and Gentiles all through the Old Testament. The Jews hate the Gentiles. The Gentiles hate the Jews. Jesus comes along and he begins to reach out to Gentiles and heal Gentiles. And then Paul finally wakes up to this, and he writes in the book of Ephesians, he has come to tear down the middle wall of petition between Jews and Gentiles and bring reconciliation of these groupings of people. So here's my last statement. We'll see if we have questions, and then we'll be done. Taking its place with Daniel, the additions to Daniel, which there's additions to the book of Daniel, just like to the book of Esther, and other apocryphal books, such as Judith and Tobit, the additions to Esther reveal the increasing pressures the Jews experienced as successive ruling nations seek to assimilate them into their dominant culture. The Jews are resistant to re assimilating. Every empire that controlled them, Babylon, Medo-Persia, the Greek Empire and Roman Empire are all seeking to assimilate the Jews, Hellenize them in the case of the Greek culture, Romanize them in the case of the Roman culture, 
and they keep resisting. And as they resist, those that are in power say those stubborn Jews just won't be a part of the overall community. And because they're not a part of the overall community, they need to go. And, there, and that becomes the justification for much of the persecution. Okay, so I've laid a lot on you tonight. I understand that, okay? Um, but hopefully what you're, you're seeing is there's two or three things I hope you've accomplished. Don't be afraid of the Apocrypha. It gives you additional information. The additions to the book of Esther are there for its theological contributions to show that God is involved in all these circumstances. And thirdly, the primary reason for the book of Esther in Jewish faith, not Christian faith, is to give reason for the festival of Purim. Okay, does that make sense to everybody? Got questions or comments? Okay. Well, that's what she said in some circles in Jew in Jerusalem, she said. In Jerusalem, it's the, the shape of, of his ears, but those cookies are the shape of his hat in the American Jewish faith. Okay. Right. Yeah. But but that video we watched, if you if you listen closely, she says the Jews in Jerusalem call it Haman's ears. Any any other comments or questions tonight? Amatashan, yeah. Well, she's got her own recipe on um, on that uh yeah, it does look like that, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Jewish Kotskis, yeah. <laughs> okay, friends, um, you know what? I I have this at home, but you know, you can also look online if this intrigues you a little bit to read some of the additions to the book of Esther. You'll find you'll find the books are online. All you got to do is oh uh-huh. It's right between the yeah, it's right between the old and new. It, it will. If it's a Catholic Bible, it, it sits between the Old and New Testament. Okay. Anything else from those online? Okay. We're good. All right. Very good. All right. All right. We'll Thank call you. it a night. I hope you have a good night. Thanks. Well, our Mexican never showed up, so we ended up with peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. <laughs> oh, <boy. laughs> All right. Have a good evening.